Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. ACAST recommends podcasts we love. Hello, I'm Dave Moore. And I'm Neil Delamere. And we want to let you know, season three of our podcast, Why Would You Tell Me That, is out now. Each week, one of us introduces some unusual facts, and with the help of a genuine expert, we explain why they are so intriguing to us. It could be about anything like how you shower in the coldest town on Earth. How would a 900-year-old ATM work? And can Formula One save the planet? We just have to justify one thing. Why would you tell me that? Why would you tell me that? Every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're only a few days from All Hallows' Eve, and I hope you have some sinister plans to celebrate, whether it's with costumes, candies, or maybe heading out to a party. Of course, if you're deep into the Halloween tradition, there's a good chance you're at least familiar with the progenitor to this spooky season, Samhain. The pagan festival of Samhain celebrates the end of the harvest and the beginning of the darkest parts of the year, when the veil between the spirit world and our own is the thinnest. Of course, Samhain is also pretty steeped in superstition, so a couple of things you might want to keep in mind this year to help you not only make the most of the season, but survive it. With the veil between worlds at its thinnest, Not all that walk the streets necessarily belong to our own terrestrial plane. Those echoing footsteps that seem to be following ever closer behind you? Don't stop walking. Keep your eyes front. Because on Samhain Eve, 
there's a good chance it isn't a living creature following you, but the haunting footsteps of a phantasm, hungry for more than just your attention. Want to keep those nasty specters at bay? A couple of things you can try, with centuries of success behind them. Ringing a bell on Samhain, for example, can help keep the evil spirits away through the long, cold, dark nights ahead. Better still, collect some animal bones and bury them in your front yard. They'll help provide a barrier between your home and any evil that might seek to find its way inside. Not all spirits, of course, have malicious intent, and if you'd like to try to get in touch with the other side, there's really no better time. Your best bet? Try hosting a dumb supper, a meal where none of the living guests speak. The lack of conversation creates space for spirits and makes them more likely to show up and join in the festivities. Of course, that can be tough keeping everyone quiet. There's always at least one loudmouth at every party, isn't there? However you choose to celebrate Halloween or Samhain this year, I just hope it's full of the best kind of chills. Speaking of the best kind of chills, I received plenty of my own recently, thanks to the incredible generosity of our newest patron, Paul Belcher. Not only does your support send frightful shivers of gratitude down our spines, Paul, your kind words about the show are truly the best treat a podcast could ask for. Thanks for being such a devout listener and for joining us behind the veil. Your support means so very much to us. If you'd like to join Paul as one of the children of the night who truly keep the lifeblood of this podcast flowing, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Lastly, before we get going, a final reminder. With Halloween just around the bend, our current submissions period is nearly at an end as well. If you have a terrifying tale you've been sitting on, or just polishing the final touches, now's the time. The clock is ticking. Midnight on the 31st, that portal closes again for another few months. So, don't wait and be left out in the cold. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions Now, let's kick off this special Halloween episode with something we've been waiting some time for. The winners of our Nautical Flash Fiction Contest. We had a great turnout for this contest. So many incredible tales of seafaring frights and underwater terrors. It was no easy task to pick a winner. In the end, we selected three runners-up and one first-place winner. Tonight we'll hear all four, as well as an additional frightfully fantastic tale to round out the evening. We begin with the contest runners-up, in no particular order. Our first tale tonight comes from A.M. Call. A.M. Call is a librarian and writer living in Massachusetts. His credits include daily science fiction, syntax and salt, 
and unnerving magazine. He encourages everyone listening to take any climate action possible, even if that's sacrificing just one oil baron to the Chthonic gods. On good days, he runs around in the woods a lot. On bad ones, he just sort of sits and thinks, you know? Children of the Night, join me for A.M. Call's The Gift of the Abyss, a runner-up in our nautical flash fiction contest. I remember asking her about it when I was around five or six. The ocean was in her eyes and she said that was why people didn't look at her. It was in her mouth too and in her hands and feet. Sometimes when she talked, a wave of rotten seaweed stench would roll over you, salty and fishy, and it was like that now. She was bored, distracted by ketchup options, her white, water-wrinkled hands leaving trails of slime on each label she touched. We were buying groceries, me and my light-up Nikes, her bare feet leaving pools of brine behind her on the white linoleum. We had the aisle to ourselves. We always did. Sometimes, people cleared out of the entire store when Mama and I showed up. It made going through checkout very fast. Cashiers were always quiet as mice. I don't remember the cashier from that day because I was trying to convince Mama to buy me a candy bar. She considered my plea through milky eyes, her mouth hanging open and her head tilted to one side, as always, her long black hair heavy and dripping with salt water. At last, she said, I don't see the harm. And I got my candy bar. I crammed it in my mouth in one go savouring the gooey decadence as we made our way to the car. The reason I remember this is because of what happened next. Looking across the parking lot toward the Joanne, I saw a pudgy middle-aged woman in a flower dress running toward us. Her eyes, brown behind her wire-rimmed glasses, were wide with fear, but her mouth was a hard line. I stopped, thinking she needed help. Her arm caught me hard knocking the air from my tiny chest as she swept me onto her shoulder. Mama was already turning. Her open mouth gaped, wider and wider, stretching, growing, huge. Around its edges, dribbling at first, and then crashing out in feral waves, came the ocean. Not the flower-toss white caps of the beach, not the sun-kissed waves. The deep ocean. The drowned ocean, the ocean where whale carcasses settle into expanses of unbroken sand, where things creep over and into those masses of dead, rotting flesh. I could smell it. I could taste it. When the woman had grabbed me, I hadn't been afraid. I'd been too surprised. But now, seeing the terrible ocean emerge from Mama and come toward us, 
my heart plummeted into an abyss. But the ocean was not there for me. I fell to the asphalt, skinning my knees as the ocean engulfed my kidnapper. For a moment, I could see her screaming out her last breath through a lens of deep black water. Then she was gone into the Stygian darkness. The ocean drew back into Mama's mouth. For a minute, I was still afraid, afraid that the cold ocean would eat me too. Then she opened her arms and walked toward me. She was Mama again. I ran to her and buried my face in her sodden rags, the emotional weight of the experience hitting me all at once. Don't cry, sweet girl, Mama crooned, her hands stroking my hair. She knelt and wrapped her bony arms around me. I won't let anyone take you away. And she never did. They stopped trying after a while. I was glad, because I'd have nightmares about being the one sucked down into Mama's maw, the light disappearing forever as I struggled against the crushing depths in vain. Whenever I woke up screaming, Mama would make me hot chocolate and tell me tales of shipwrecks that could never be found. Why did you let them be wrecked, Mama? I asked. Boats become wrecks because they are small. I am without boundary or fathom. One day, you will understand. Mama smiled, an attempt to reassure me. Her long teeth, barely sheathed in shrunken gums behind black lips, didn't bother me, although I knew by then that they should. She reached out a hand. I took it, feeling the spongy flesh yield and squish in my light grip. We started to fight when I was a teenager. I began by pushing back against small commands. Sweep the floor, do your homework. A giddy background of fear gave way to thrilling boldness. I tested her every limit. When she raged at me, the sea beyond our cliffside house would rise and rage as well. On a sunny day, the ocean would roil from its depths. The fishers in town would catch strange, gelatinous creatures. The postal service stopped sending mail delivery to our house on the sea cliff because Mama's wrath would consume everything and everyone around her without mercy. Everyone, that is. Except me. We were fighting over something inconsequential. I was sixteen and screaming everything I could think of to hurt her. A violent whirlpool raged in the harbour pulling in and obliterating docks and ships, gouging chunks out of the land. Houses, cars and people would all sink down into the submarine trenches that day, too deep to ever recover. But only my anger was real to me then. I called my mother a witch, a disgusting rotten corpse, a meat puppet. The earth shook under the hammer blows of tsunamis. One day... You will understand, Mama hissed. One day you will understand, Mama hissed. One day, when you become one with the crushing black depths, when you know what eyeless worms have learned by suckling the sulfurous blood of the earth, you will know that your foolish whims were nothing but distractions. I felt a chill. I will never be like you, Mama, I snarled. I won't be a monster who kills everyone I don't like. You will. As my mother was of the depths, so will you be, and so too your daughter. And hers. 
She advanced on me, her bloated, drowned body shaking with the power it contained. I should let the sea into you now. I should abandon this limited form forever and give you the gift of the abyss. You will become terrible and full of dark power. Your anger will destroy these ants, these ticks, these arrogant mortals. Yes, it is time. Come here. She grabbed me with hands too soft to be as strong as they were. I screamed and pulled back. I hid her and she didn't stop. When I tried to wrench away, she caught me again and I was jammed against her ragged rotten clothing just like when I was a child. The taste of chocolate and the feeling of being snatched away came back to me in a rush that left me nauseous. I gagged, doubling over, freeing her grip on me through sheer instinct and luck. I took my chance and ran. The ocean tore the coast to shreds that night, the waves clawing higher as though to grab me back. I kept running inland, always inland. Soon, the smell of brine and the vast expanse of the horizon were replaced by the scent of pine and close wooded hills. I ran and ran. I never stopped. It's been sixty years since that last fight. I've lived in a van, in a farming commune in the Midwest, in a treehouse. I've had many lovers, but no children. Many jobs, but no money. Now I'm old, and everything hurts. I have cancer, one of the painful and slow varieties. It won't kill me before my bills come due. Nobody has offered to help. When I asked, nobody agreed. Now and then, more so of late since I am alone now, my mind drifts out over the Marianas Trench. I remember the mysteries of the sea wrecks, the power of the deep ocean, the abyss. Mama, saving me from kidnappers again and again with the unholy waters that she contained wrecking everything around her in the throes of her love for me. For the first time, I consider what it would mean to become such a monster. I stand on a beach for the first time since I left. It is rocky and cold. Before me stretches the eternal horizon, hiding bottomless ravines where marine snow drifts down into darkness forever. Mama waits for me there, with her gift, the crushing darkness ready to enter me and transform me into something terrible. I'm ready for it now. I step into the surf. That was A.M. Call's The Gift of the Abyss, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium, with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories. Her work has appeared on the other stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in newmyths.com 
among others. Find out more about her or her work at jasminearch.com. Thank you, Jasmine. Our second flash contest runner-up tonight comes from Helena O'Connor. Helena O'Connor is an Australian writer with stories published in Orealis, Andromeda Spaceways magazine, and Nature Futures. She lives near the sea and writes anywhere with flavored coffee and free Wi-Fi. Though she yearns to create nice utopian worlds full of magic and unicorns, she typically ends up writing cursed, creepy horror stories just like this one. Listen with me, children of the night, to Helena O'Connor's flash contest runner-up, The Curse of the Eldritch Mermaid. The mermaid's eyes are rotting holes. Her hair is full of dead fish. She'll drink you full of seawater. Drink you till you're dead. Don't catch her eye. Turn away from things that shine in the sand. I lost count of the times Ma warned me of the sea. All my life I'd stayed away, but the call remained strong. Night after night, I dreamed of crashing waves over unforgiving sand, the pull of the ocean depths. I bolted awake to the creak of heaving timbers and flutter of cloth sails, the turn of the roiling waves. I yearned for adventure on the high seas. An old wives' tale wouldn't keep me landbound. I found myself at the docks one bright morning, winter coming into spring, buds still firm in their leaves. Blue skies stretched on the horizon, above a cold breeze that ruffled my new haircut. I was barely seventeen and desperate to look the part. Micah, is it? The first mate was a burly sword who'd spent many years at sea. Tattoos of sea creatures adorned her arms. One in particular, eyes like rotting holes, caught my eye. She gave a rough snort. <laughs> Heard of the mermaid, have ye? Ye scared boy. No, sir. The first mate leaned close, whiskey and tobacco on her breath. Ye should be. Her two front teeth gleamed gold in the sun. How you think I got these shinies? She grinned wide, tapping her teeth. They call me Gold Sally. I squared my shoulders. I'm, I'm not scared, Gold Sally. Sally leaned back against the rail. Good lad. Your dad vouched for you. She jerked a thumb towards the ramp to the ship's deck. My da ran the tavern in town and was well-liked by the sea folk. 
He had sailed himself once upon a time and told many a tall tale. But something happened to turn him to a landlocked life. He had a scar down his back that he never mentioned. Now I'd eventually relented to my begging and put in a good word. He pressed a shiny stone into my hand. For luck. Smiling as he waved me to the docks. The stone was unusual, shaped like a shining heart. Don was proud I was seeking my fortune, but Ma's voice rang in my ears. She'll drink him up. Drink him till he's dead. Don't let her take my boy. I joined the crew of the trader's son as a deckhand. Though the trader ran the flags of a merchant ship, her captain had a taste for piracy. Treasure was split among the whole crew, even lowly deckhands. It was a way into the ocean life I dreamed about. We sailed for days under blue skies with kind winds and were soon far from home. I struggled to find my sea legs, sick despite the calm weather. The older crewmates and the bosun, old Petey, took pity and told me stories in my bunk. The captain's following a treasure map. Old Petey tapped his nose. Cursed it be. Curse? The sea dogs laughed at my horror, slapped their hands on the wooden barrels we used for tables. He soft like a woman, boy. He scared. No, sir. Then the first mate strolled in and asked who they were calling soft like a woman. She smashed a few heads together, and that was the end of the conversation. No one messed with Gold Sally, except Captain Giselle, who was quick with a sword and quicker with her tongue. I had no real knowledge of women, but the glances between her and the first mate weren't lost on me. I thought of Patty, a girl from town who often retrieved her dog from the tavern. Once she'd led me into the cellar for, uh... Show me yours, but when it, when it got down to it, neither of us had the courage to show each other much of anything. Patty had dimples when she smiled, and I liked her, but the sea was my real mistress. That night, a storm blew in, and we shivered in our bunks. Wind whipped the traitor, bowed astern. She howled and creaked. Go to sleep, boy. Storm will pass. Old Petey's grin shone in the dark. Then a gust of wind guttered the candles, and the smile froze on his face. A ghostly apparition rose through the floorboards. Flickering light threw patches across green, mottled skin. Wild hair hung suspended around a ghastly face. Instead of legs, there was only a rotted stump of tail. Dead Fish fell from her hair with soft, wet thumps. We gagged on the stench. The mermaid smelled of death. I cowered against the wall. She drifted towards old Petey, her eyes deep, black holes. P Please, lady, old Petey begged. Don't hurt me. You stole my treasure. She hissed like rain on a hot grill. The smell of fish was overwhelming. 
We'll make it right. The mermaid never slowed. She grasped old Petey's face, pressing her mouth to his. Blood dripped where her pearl fingernails impaled him. Old Petey's eyes bulged. He moaned and shuddered. The mermaid gripped him, sucking and slurping, drinking him full. Blood ran rivulets down his chin. Old Petey shook so hard one boot came off, falling to join the dead fish. Stop! My voice died in my throat. The mermaid released old Petey, her eyes locked onto mine. My treasure! Don't catch her eye. What had I done? My heart thundered in my chest. The mermaid stretched out her hands. The moments passed in aching silence. Then, slowly, she sank below the floorboards. Old Petey blinked. Once. Twice. His eyes were unseeing, white. He listed sideways, water streaming from his mouth. She drank him full of seawater, I whispered. Drank him dead. The vision of the mermaid lingered, etched into every fiber. There was a shining, heart-shaped hole in her neck. I wondered what exactly had been stolen. The candles flicked to life, illuminating the room. The other sailors were dead, water streaming from their mouths. It was bad luck to survive the mermaid. We made anger at an unchartered island. I was forced to walk the plank. Defiant, I met the captain's eyes. How will this make it right? I gave your da a choice, said Giselle with a grim smile. The gold? Himself? Or you? My head reeled, thinking of Da's scar. How he'd never talked about his past. He was on the ship that stole the treasure? A trunk of gold from this very island. The crew were drowned by that eldritch bitch. Only he survived. How do you think he bought that fancy tavern? It's true, lad, Gold Sally nodded. My heart sank. My da had waved me off with a smile. How could he? She attacks our ship for revenge. It has to stop. We could sell a tavern, pay back the gold. My voice cracked as tears threatened. Your da made his choice. The mermaid didn't take him, Gold Sally said softly, when she had the chance. We have to pay the debt, blood for blood. He's just a kid, a good kid. A tear ran from Sally's eye. The captain tightened her fingers on Sally's shoulder. With a sigh, Gold Sally stomped the plank. I fell into the water. 
By the time I surfaced, spluttering with cold, the trader was raising anchor. I huddled on the island, watching the ship sail away. When the moon was high, the mermaid arrived, creeping in from the sea. The fish stench was cloying, and her voice rasped like winter leaves. My treasure! I don't have your gold. I hadn't stolen anything, yet I was to die. Drunk dead by the mermaid, abandoned to the sea I had yearned for all my life. I should have stayed in the tavern with Patty. Her void eyes stared. I care nothing for gold. I was taken aback, confused. What was her treasure if not the stolen gold? The beach was covered in stones, which pressed uncomfortably into my flesh. They were shaped like shining hearts. Things that shine in the sand. I reached into my pocket for the stone Da gave me for luck. Maybe he'd never needed to sacrifice the tavern. Or me to stop the bloodshed. With shaking hands, I placed my stone upon the beach. The mermaid smiled. The hole in her neck shimmered closed. She drifted towards me, pearl claws reaching. Perhaps she was lonely too. How would it feel to fill with water? At least I would know the taste of a woman's lips before death. The mermaid was changing. Her hair grew lustrous, live fish leaping within the silken curls. Her tail gleamed whole, the smell of decay vanished. Her scales shone incandescent aquamarine. She was vibrant, beautiful, and alive. The sea had ever been my mistress. It was fitting its lady claim me. I surrendered to her embrace and carried her into the sea. Together, we dove beneath the waves. That was Helena O'Connor's The Curse of the Eldritch Mermaid, one of the runners-up in our Flash contest, as read by Bryce Dolly. Bryce Dolly is new to voiceovers and voice acting, and is excited to jump in. If you'd like him to record anything for you, he can be found at fiverr.com slash awkwardmammal. Thank you, Bryce. Our final runner-up is a tale from Deirdre Coles. Deirdre Coles lives in Seattle, where she spends her time fighting crime, screaming insults at ospreys, and trying to ingratiate herself to the local crow population. All hail future overlords. Her previous work has appeared in Everyday Fiction, 365 Tomorrows, 
Infective Ink, Micro Horror, Free Flash Fiction, and Casca Press Fantasy Flash Fiction. She is inspired by her children and thinks she sometimes goes too easy on the moms in her stories. If her family doesn't like it, they should write their own. Children of the Night, join me for Deirdre Cole's The Marrow Men, a runner-up in our nautical flash fiction contest. Everyone who could leave the island left the island long ago. The summer people had been gone for weeks, and this year more than half of the remaining year-rounders went with them, not even stopping to tell us goodbye. It was the coldest November ever, and our thin walls weren't keeping out the winter. It was a bad Friday night, and I thought they would be coming for us very soon. The Merrow Men. They lived in the sea, but they were always watching the docks and boats and beaches, the Merrow men were pale as fish bellies, with flat, noseless faces and awful hands, long as the rest of their arms and webbed, and tipped with hooked claws. Their eyes were black, and their lipless mouths were crowded with teeth. Despite their teeth and claws, what they liked to do with humans was drag them down and drown them. The Merrow men were old family lore. My sister Becca said they were a sort of unpaid babysitter, to warn the children away from the water when we were surrounded by water on all sides. But my mother had started speaking of them again with a new urgency. They were our own local twist on the end of days. Soon, sooner than we'd think, they'd gather in the trench off our eastern shore. Then they'd come boiling out of the sea, like maggots from a dead dog's belly, scrambling hand over hand onto our docks and boats and hunting us down. My mother said it would be God. My father said it would be the government, but they both believed the end of everything was coming. They even seemed to take comfort in it, as if the greatest horror would be our lives going on as they were. They agreed the end was coming, but they didn't agree on much else. The walls were thin inside the house, too. The problem was, my mum was being unsupportive and a bitch, and there was nothing wrong with having a little ambition. That was my dad's point of view, which I could hear loud and clear. My mum's objections were softer. I could hear only the low, worried drone of her pleading voice. I knew she'd be pressing on her rosary through the fabric of her sweater, so hard that the beads left dents and the edges of the gold cross cut into her skin. When my dad finally stormed out, I stopped pretending to be asleep and whispered Becca's name. I didn't really want to know. But dad was swaggering and volatile, and it would be too easy to put a foot wrong. I knew he was dealing. I knew that was why the remaining island people would barely talk to us. But I didn't know what had changed. She sighed deep. Dad's decided it's time he moves up in the world. Mum's worried about it. 
You have to know you can't call the cops, no matter what happens. In the dark of our bedroom, she glanced over at the wall to the kitchen. Tonight he left without laying hands on her. Mom was right to be worried, as it turned out. Saturday morning we had visitors. Three men who said they were here to talk to my dad about business, but the talk turned into something else quickly. It was a ritual of the kind I thought, I had hoped, was left behind in the schoolyard. He was made to kneel. He was made to beg and made to see that his begging wouldn't stop them from hurting him. My mother and Becca and I were made to sit on the couch and watch it all. The man who did all the talking, the man who seemed to be enjoying himself thoroughly, kept looking over at my mother and saying her name. She flinched every time, and so did I. Didn't he know that every word he spoke to her was another tally mark, another punch or kick she'd be getting once my dad was healed enough to give them? Of course he did, I realised. That was part of it, too. When it was finally over, they took both of my dad's duffel bags and both of his phones, and just like that he was out of the sales business. I could hear them laughing as they headed down the street to the docks in their boat. None of us spoke. Once my dad could stand, he staggered out of the front door without looking at any of us. My mum got to work right away cleaning the blood and other fluids off the living room floor. She didn't look at us either but she spoke as she scrubbed. I think it's best if you girls go spend the night at a friend's house tonight. Give everyone a chance to cool down. You're crazy if you think I'm going to leave you alone to face him, Becca said. I was not so brave. I shoved some clothes and crackers and bananas in my backpack and left while she and Becca were still arguing. I didn't actually have anywhere to go. My last friend on the island, Chloe Martin, left with her family in the most recent wave of departures, but the Martins had left an empty house and half their furniture behind, and I knew how to get into their abandoned house. That night, I wished I'd brought a flashlight to read by, and even more, I wished I'd brought blankets. I wondered if my dad was down by the docks. I wondered if the Merrowmen would come and pluck him off. Now, when he was so obviously a prey animal, I wondered if they would come for us all tonight. I imagined cold white arms grabbing me, dragging me down to the shell and bone-strewn sea floor, soundless laughter in response to my soundless screams. I woke up abruptly the next morning, suddenly realising how stupid I'd been to come to the Martin's house, the first place anyone would look for me. My dad was calling for me, and there was something very wrong with his voice. Tara? Where are you, Tara? He was upstairs. The three men must have come back, I thought. That was why his voice sounded so rough and strange. I was as quiet as I could, but the neglected back door shrieked, so I abandoned stealth and went with speed instead, rabbiting off through the backyards. I heard a shout. The only place to go from the Martins was down to the docks, and I could hear the sounds of pursuit close behind me. There were boats to either side, but there was only one hiding place I could reach in time. I scrambled down the ladder off the side of the pier. I had to lower myself into the water, so cold it felt like steel manacles slamming shut around my legs. I swung myself to the back side of the ladder, where I'd be concealed by the pier. Hissing through my teeth, I forced myself down another three rungs. My lower legs were already numb anyway. I looked down from the bottom of the ladder. 
and that was when I realised it was too late for hiding, too late for everything. The mirror men had already been here. My mother lay there on the seafloor, staring up at me, her hair waving gently back and forth. Becca was there too. I always knew I'd never see them coming. The mirror men were too fast and too strong. I hoped they hadn't seen them coming either. The cold of the water was draining me like a sliced-up vein. My hands cramped around the acorn barnacles on the sides of the ladder. The sharp edges of the shells cut me, and narrow ribbons of blood were unfurling from my fingers. A siren song, calling sharks and worse things from the deep. But my hands were so numb I couldn't feel a thing. I heard boots on the pier above me, and I peered up through the cracks between the planks. Only one set of boots. My father's. He was alone. I lifted my head. I climbed up to meet him. That was Deirdre Cole's The Marrow Men, as read by Georgia Cook. Georgia Cook is an illustrator and writer from London. She has experience on both sides of the recording booth, and in addition to Tales to Terrify, has contributed to such podcasts as The Other Stories and The Night's End, as both a narrator and writer. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website, at georgiacookwriter.com. Thank you, Georgia. Acast recommends podcasts we love. Hello, I'm Dave Moore. And I'm Neil Delamere. And we want to let you know season three of our podcast, Why Would You Tell Me That, is out now. Each week, one of us introduces some unusual facts, and with the help of a genuine expert, we explain why they are so intriguing to us. It could be about anything like how you shower in the coldest town on earth. How would a 900-year-old ATM work? And can Formula One save the planet? We just have to justify one thing. Why would you tell me that? Why would you tell me that? Every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. And finally, the moment you've been waiting for, Children of the Night, the winner of our nautical flash fiction contest, which also comes to us from Deirdre Coles. Lend me your ears, Children of the Night, for Deirdre Coles' Bells Made of Bones, the winner of the Tales to Terrify nautical flash fiction contest.
Day three with no radio, no power, no pills. Not necessarily in that order. I get that I should be a lot more worried about the first two, but as my parents have told me so many times, I don't have my priorities straight. My new friend Bethany and I are propped up against the cool metal railing, shivering despite the sun. The ocean around us is blank and shiny as a doll's plastic eye. Underneath, it's full of tentacles and teeth, but here the flat, still surface seems to mock us. No storms or waves required to take us down. We just have to writhe on the hook. When we first got out here, Reverend Curtis marched the ten of us patients-slash-prisoners out onto the deck, the staff standing around us in a loose, menacing horseshoe. I was too freaked out to listen closely, but he droned on about how the immensity of the ocean would help us understand how small we truly were, how sobriety was the only choice, how there were no drugs here and no way to obtain any, that we could accept the ocean as our higher power if God wouldn't do. It was just a few hours later when the engines cut off and the power flickered out. At first I thought it was another trick, like the way I'd gotten here in the first place when I went to what I thought was a buy and ended up in what I thought was a kidnapping. It turned out it was, just one approved and paid for by my parents. By the time I figured out the breakdown was real, I was too busy with my own suffering to offer much in the way of suggestions. For me, withdrawal started with sweat droplets springing from every pore, so many tears running down my face and nose I felt sure I would choke on them. Bethany was even worse off, which made me feel weirdly fond of her. Hey guys, I think you better hear this, says Carson, emerging from below. Bethany and I try to ignore him, but he's insistent. When I stagger to my feet, the sea slants glassy blades of light into my eyes. Bethany gets up too, but then she twists back to the railing to throw up again for at least the fourth time today. The rotten, low-tide smell turns my stomach, but I don't intend to follow her example. On our first day, I threw up over the side, and watching the small fish come and feed on the contents of my stomach made me vomit again and again. Carson guides me downstairs and then shoves me into a bathroom. I try to struggle free, but I finally realize why he brought me here. Through the thin metal wall, I can hear the staff strategizing in the next room. I'm not saying I agree with you, but how would it work? That's Paula, who I hate fractionally less than the other counselors. That's bullshit, Paula. Of course you agree with me. Hiram, who I hate most of all. He was part of my intake. He was brutal about it and didn't bother to hide how much he was enjoying himself. Hiram gets louder. It's a bad sign that he's not bothering to lower his voice, I realize. It means he's already decided. If it comes down to it, and you know it will, I'll choose our lives over these spoiled little shits. What's next for them? An OD in an alley? Another couple rounds of rehab until mom and dad cut them off? Throw them overboard now. Or maybe we don't toss them, says Jim. I'm surprised because I thought he hated us even more than Hiram. Jesus Christ, nobody cares about these kids. The parents will be relieved. You know they will. Hiram is almost yelling. Even with them gone, you know there's not much food, not much water, Jim says. They could make a contribution for once in their lives, a kind of holy communion for all of us who want to live, to bond us and make sure nobody decides to chat about it later. Holy shit. I step back out of the bathroom and look at Carson. 
His eyes are wide and panicked. I'm scared too, but I'm also strangely annoyed. What kind of loser is Carson if he's looking to me for answers? What am I going to do about it? If I tell Reverend Curtis, he won't believe me, and I doubt one old man could protect us even if he did. Most of us kids are half-dead from withdrawal anyway, and in no shape for a physical confrontation with the counselors. And there's nowhere to hide. Our doors don't lock. That's the thing you learn about forced rehab. You get to keep nothing, not even the thoughts inside your head. Because if you're not sharing what they want in exactly the way they want, you're trapped until you do. I wish Carson hadn't told me anything at all. Don't talk to Bethany, okay? I say. At least she won't have to know it's coming. Carson doesn't understand me at first, and then he gets a knowing look on his face and nods. Getting it wrong as usual. He thinks I've got some kind of plan to offer up Bethany and save the two of us. I look at him with disgust. I've been on the receiving end of so much contempt. I find it comes easily to me. I'm going back up, I sigh. I head back to my spot at the railing, Carson trailing after me. Up on the deck, I see Reverend Curtis for the first time since the boat broke down. He's struggling to drag a piece of heavy equipment out of the locker near the bow. Carson wanders over to him. Do you need some help? Yes, Reverend Curtis says, studying him. This should help us send a signal. Old-fashioned, but sometimes it's better that way. He directs Carson to pull on one corner of the object. A second later, Carson shrieks as the object lurches free of the locker and against the railing, and one prong gouges his hand. If I didn't know better, I would think Reverend Curtis did that on purpose. The Reverend lowers the object over the bow. When it's halfway in the water, he knocks it hard against the side of the boat. It booms and clangs like the world's biggest bell. I grab at my ears, but the sound is so loud, it rings through my very bones, noise that is also pressure that is also pain. My teeth fizz against each other. Before the sound has completely died away, the others stumble up onto the deck. Hiram is yelling at Reverend Curtis, but then his voice fades out. People are leaning over the railing to look down into the ocean, and I join them. My head lurches as I realize that I can see very deep into the clear water, to a depth where it should be dark. And things are rising through the water to us. They are gorgeous, rippling billows of many colors. They look a little like gigantic versions of sea anemones, huge, fat-petaled flowers fluttering as they float upwards, rich purple shading to green and yellows from lemon to corn. The one beneath us is already big enough to engulf the whole boat, and it's still growing, still rising. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Bethany to my left. Her feet are up on the third rung, and she is leaning out. She gives a glad cry and scrambles up to the top of the railing and flings herself forward. Her expression is pure bliss. The creature beneath us surges up, ten times as fast, and swallows her whole. Other people are climbing the railings too, not just us kids, but the staff too. They dive and are consumed. And now that it's closer, I feel the call myself. It's everything I could ever want. Every pill I've ever taken, every high I've ever experienced was just a whisper, an echo. And here are the gods themselves opening their arms to me, opening their mouths to me, 
it is impossible to resist, and I've never been much good at resisting. As I climb the railing, I see Reverend Curtis standing at the helm of the boat. Perhaps I should hate him, or feel angry or sad or betrayed. I don't know what kind of bargain he has made, or how many times he has brought others before. Looking at him now, I think he may be years, or perhaps many decades older than I thought at first. But in my euphoria, it's impossible to feel anything except gratitude. I ascend and step forward into the glorious sky and sea. That was Deirdre Cole's Bells Made of Bones, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Thank you, Emily. But wait, children of the night, there's more. To cap off our Halloween episode and really get you in the, uh, spirit, we have one more tale for you tonight. A Haunted House Yarn from Maureen O'Leary. Maureen O'Leary is a graduate of Ashland MFA and the managing editor of The Black Fox Review. When she isn't writing novels, short stories, poems, and essays, she is reading, lifting weights, and taking long walks while listening to Tales of Terror. She can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Maureen Now. Children of the night, dive with me one more time into the abyss for Maureen O'Leary's A House is Haunted, a Tales to Terrify original. The House The first daughter is wrong to think the stories about her. She is a grown woman now, pacing from room to dismantled room. The furniture and lamps and pictures and books are dusted with pinpricks of white paint from the sprayers. Workers' boots have marked the carpets like footprints in the snow, though it rarely snows here. The sun is relentless until the winter, when rains turn the pastures surrounding the neighborhood green. I am built on land that used to belong to a rancher, but is now owned by a developer who builds cheap houses that cost more money than they're worth. I am made of drywall that is already crumbling underneath the layers of paint. As a girl, the first daughter gazed out her bedroom window at the hills behind the houses across the street. Her parents didn't allow their children to crawl under the barbed wire fencing to explore them. 
Her brother ignored these orders and roamed the hills whenever he wanted. The woman was an obedient girl, spending most of her childhood in the upstairs room, writing in her notebooks and reading her books. She moved out 30 years ago, and this story is not about her. I am not her house anymore. The First Daughter I watched a French film about a family of grown siblings that loved each other, even though they'd grown distant because of the demands of work and raising their own families. The movie is about their visit to their childhood home, full of wonderful memories and beautiful, important things. Some of the adult children didn't want to sell the house and didn't want to let any of the beautiful, artful things go, and some did because life went on, you know? The adult children loved one another and loved their mother, and everyone was gentle and intelligent. This story is nothing like that movie. The House The fresh coat of white paint covers scratches on the outside of the woman's childhood bedroom door. The first daughter. The stairs in this house were instruments of torture for my father in the last five years of his life. On his final day here, he took an hour to go down the six steps to the garage so we could take him to an assisted living facility, and he screamed for God on every single one. I hate this house. I drag my hate from room to room like chains. The junk haulers are coming to scoop everything out. There are no beautiful things here, no memories I want to hold. This house is a rotten tooth. Excavation is the only answer. The house. The haulers move fast, crashing and smashing the things. They are careful with the china and silver, which they talk about selling for a few dollars on eBay. They leave in four hours, and my breath exhales through the front door behind them. The First Daughter On the final walkthrough with a real estate agent, I wait to feel relieved that the house is empty and ready to sell. I wait to feel. I never belonged here. I sound like I'm feeling sorry for myself, but you try growing up in this house. For years in my father's dementia, he had no idea who I was. But I understand that happens sometimes. I never took that personally. As a widow, my mother doesn't know what she wants, yet blames me when she doesn't feel satisfied with what she gets. That's the kind of old lady she is now, and that's okay. I never see or speak to my brother, and my mother never hears from him either. Back when I was a kid, I felt my family couldn't see me. I wondered sometimes if I existed. The House Carpet, wall to wall, new windows, new paint. You can remove the banisters, the real estate agent says to the buyers. Those were popular in the late 70s. The seller is the first mother who ever lived in this house. She is 80 now. 
the father is dead. The first mother wants the house to go to a family. The first daughter. We acted like a nice family. People thought we were a nice family. I don't know what we were. The house. The first mother, father, and daughter thought a burglar broke in through a smashed window in the downstairs bathroom. The mother said she suspected the kid who lived across the street, whose dad was always working on his car in the driveway. Someone went through the mother's jewelry and helped himself to the jade earrings and gold necklace she always wore on Christmas. A butt imprint dented the taut bedspread on the side where the mother slept. The mother said she felt violated. The father called the police. A policeman dusted for prints, leaving oily black graphite in patches on the banisters, on the dresser, on the toilet downstairs. We probably won't find anything, the policeman said. The boy across the street is suspicious, the mother said. The policeman knocked on the neighbor's door. When no one answered, he got in his car and drove away. The father went into his study and closed the door on the rest of the family, and the mother made dinner and cried. The daughter stood by her parents' bed and looked into the butt imprint for a long time before going to her own bedroom to write in her notebook. The First Daughter I dreamt last night that I was in my parents' house, and there was cat shed in the bathtub and ground into the carpets. I had 15 minutes to clean the entire mess before the new owners moved in, but my parents' vacuum cleaner kept breaking. We had a kitten for two weeks when I was in second grade, but he died falling down the stairs while I was at school. My brother was in junior high by then. He got home before everybody else and found our kitten on the floor with a broken neck. The kitten wasn't in my dream, though. Just piles of his shit stinking every room. The House The new father stands at the top of the stairs and says he smells a cat. Did anyone drag cat poop into the house? Everyone check the bottoms of your shoes. The new mother, the new daughter, and the new sons do not find any cat poop. Yet the new mother gets out the vacuum cleaner and cleans the carpets in every room and on every stair. The three children go outside. They say the air is better there. The new daughter lingers in her bedroom a moment before joining her brothers. There is a sound of paper, pages turning. She tilts her head. She does not tell anyone. The First Daughter Someone broke into the house while my brother and I were at school and my parents were at work. This was the spring I turned 12. The neighbor family across the street kept to themselves, but we thought their son probably did it. He was older than my brother. My dad thought it was low class that the neighbor dad was always fixing his car in the driveway. From my bedroom window a couple days after the break-in, I watched my brother knock on the neighbor's door. The mother let him in, and he disappeared inside the house for ten minutes. When he came out, he waved goodbye to someone inside, 
and later at the dinner table, he said that he saw mom's gold necklace and jade earrings in the boy's room. My dad pounded his fist on the table, shaking all of the silverware and china and glasses. My mother's hands went straight to her lap, and she didn't move. My brother's eyes darted from one to the other, as if he was watching a ball bounce between them. My stomach felt greasy, my skin hot as if I were afraid of being slapped, though my parents never hit me. My mother cleared the table and did the dishes in silence. This is not the important part. The House The first father, mother, and daughter were wrong about the neighbor boy stealing the mother's things. The brother came home in the middle of a school day and broke the downstairs bathroom window with a rock from the side yard. He took the necklace and earrings and stuffed them into the front pocket of his jeans. He sat on the bed and bounced. He left the front door open after he left the house. The First Daughter The morning after my dream about the cat shed in the tub and carpets, I go into my daughter's room to feed her goldfish to try to feel better. I always hold my breath in the moment I enter, afraid that her fish will have leapt from the water in the night. I take good care of my daughter's fish, keeping the water clean so that when she comes home for Thanksgiving, they will still be alive. In the months before she left for college, I said yes to every silly thing she asked for, including the aquarium full of goldfish that I knew I would end up having to take care of. I send her a text of a picture of the fish nibbling their breakfast. She texts back an emoji of a fish, then a heart. I love you, Mom, my daughter says to me. When I was a kid, my goldfish always died by jumping out of the tank, no matter how clean and fresh I kept the water. I would come home from school and find them lying dead on my dresser. My mother said fish committed suicide sometimes, but it was what fish did. None of my daughter's goldfish ever killed themselves, though. And I don't think that's what fish do. I think it's what my fish did. And I blame the house. This is not the important part of the story. The House The new mother cleans her daughter's room and finds a small puddle on the girl's pink dresser. The mother taps the puddle and sniffs her finger, smells fish. She sniffs under her own armpits before getting on her hands and knees to look under the dresser in the bed. There is nothing to explain the water, the smell. She wipes the dresser surface clean and closes the bedroom door after she leaves. The First Daughter The neighbor's son caught me coming home from school not long after he broke into our house. He jumped me from behind the juniper hedge on our lawn and dragged me into our backyard. He knocked me down, smacked the back of my head on the concrete patio. My teeth clacked on my tongue, and the pain in my mouth ricocheted against the pain in my skull before he slugged me in the stomach twice. He knocked the breath out of me, and I thought I was dying. Then he got up without saying anything and went inside his house, 
I was sick for a couple of days, head achy and throwing up. I told my parents I had the flu. I didn't tell anyone what really happened. Not even myself. The House The first daughter cried so hard when her kitten died that her father and mother agreed no more pets ever again, except for goldfish. They were wrong about the kitten's death being an accident. The son came home from school before everyone. He had the house to himself for at least an hour every day. He sat on the stairs holding the kitten, petting her head softly at first, then harder, staring into space while the animal squirmed in his strong hands. When his family came home, he watched his sister cry. He held his fist to his own eye until the mother put her arm around him and drew him close. He rubbed his fingers together, bits of downy fur still stuck to his skin. The First Daughter I have a dream that I tell my dad that the neighbor kid beat me up when I was twelve. He turns his back on me as if he doesn't hear, and I wake up grinding my teeth, my throat choked with a spiny burr of rage. But how can I be angry at my parents when I never told them the truth at the time? I pretended nothing happened. The boy and his family moved away soon after, and as I got older, I tried to remember what did happen as kids messing around, or as some kind of accident. I looked at my own daughter at 12, 13, 14, 15, and tortured myself with imagining her head slammed into concrete, her soft belly punched by a hard fist. Now my dad is dead, and my mother is old, and it's too late now for anyone to bear witness. The dentist warns that I will grind my teeth to nubs while I sleep, and suggests a night guard. After the beating, I used to lay in my bed awake, listening. I blocked my door with my dresser so that I could finally sleep. And still sometimes at night I thought I heard someone scratching at the wood, whispering my name. This is not the important part of the story. The House The new daughter wakes to the sounds of teeth grinding, of someone scratching at the door. She tries to leave to go to the bathroom, but the door will not open. She yells to bring her mother to help her. The mother has no problem turning the knob. The daughter cries as her mother holds her. The father stuffs paper into the little hole in the jam so the door can't latch shut anymore. When the father and mother go back to bed, the brothers sneak into the daughter's room with their pillows and blankets and sleep on her floor. We are here to protect you, the little one says. Don't be scared. The First Daughter In my dream, I walk through the walls of my parents' old house while the new owners are sleeping. I creep through the house, touching their things. I dream that the house is clean and full of colorful paintings and vases. I dream of a pink dresser in a little girl's bedroom that once was my bedroom. 
And when I try to leave through the house's front door, the knob will not turn in my hand. I can't remember waking up. I don't think my eyes are open. The House The first daughter asked for a lock on her bedroom, but the parents refused. We are not that kind of family, the father said. We don't lock each other out. The daughter started pushing her dresser in front of her door at night. The first parents criticized their daughter for being a sullen teenager. They criticized her for wearing black clothing. They told her she looked depressed. They told her to snap out of it. A lot of people would like your life, the mother said. The first mother was wrong about this. The first mother was also wrong when she said that jumping out of the tank was something goldfish did sometimes. The daughter's fish didn't commit suicide. There was nothing wrong with the daughter. There was nothing wrong with her fish. The First Daughter I want to leave my parents' old house, but I can't wake up. I try counting to ten. I try screaming. I might not be dreaming. I must be dreaming. The House The new owners are Catholic. There is a framed painting of Jesus in the living room. There is a crucifix hanging in the master bedroom. The mother says maybe the house is haunted and suggests inviting the priest for dinner. The new mother dusts the furniture to prepare for the visit. There is a graphite fingerprint on a purple enamel vase she keeps on a shelf too high for the children to reach. She stares at the fingerprint, the rag she is using to clean in her fist, for a long time. The First Daughter I move carefully around the house that is no longer my parents' house. I don't want the new owners to detect me, because my being here is extremely rude, and I don't want to disturb them. I stand at the front door until the wood begins to breathe, swelling and contracting like a bellows. This is not the important part of the story. The important part of the story is that it wasn't the neighbor boy who gave me a concussion when I was twelve. It wasn't the neighbor boy who punched me in the stomach until I could not breathe. It wasn't the neighbor boy who stood as if snapping out of a trance, looking down at me as I lay on my back on the patio under his basketball hoop that our father installed so he could practice after school. It wasn't the neighbor boy I was afraid was going to hurt me while I slept. It wasn't the neighbor boy who hurt me. The House During the meal of chicken mole, the priest talks with his mouth full about how not enough American kids want to grow up to be priests. The new daughter gets a piece of chicken skin stuck in her throat and stops breathing. The parents listen to the priest and do not see their daughter's face turning red. The older brother pulls her out of her chair and wraps his arms around her middle. The girl coughs into his hand and draws a breath. The parents leap to their feet, and there is yelling, and the mother begins to cry. No one says anything about a haunted house. 
When the priest leaves, the little brother says, I don't want to be a priest. The older brother says, no one wants you for their priest anyway, but I don't want to be a priest either, to be honest. The children go sit on the parents' bed and watch TV. They let the sister pick the show. The new mother and new father clean the kitchen together. They sit in the backyard and comment on the fresh air. They say to each other, we were silly to invite the priest. Everything is going to be fine. The First Daughter I Can't Wake Up That was Maureen O'Leary's A House is Haunted, as read by Andrew Gibson and Crystal Hammond. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links you can find in the show notes. Crystal Hammond is a narrator-slash-writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology, and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at thekmhammond. Thank you, Andrew and Crystal. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now, Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, 
and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we reach beyond the veil for more Tales to Terrify. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.